Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello, and welcome to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. We want to extend a special welcome to today's listeners of NRM Streamcast, one of the Leslie Marshall Show's new streaming partners. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Edwith Theogene, the Advocacy Director for Generation Progress. And I'm Charlotte Hancock, uh, also of Generation Progress. Um, So for today, as most people know, February is Black History Month. Yay! Um, Which gives us an opportunity each year to reflect on everything that Black Americans have achieved and endured, as well as the many ways that they have tirelessly fought to improve a country that has failed them at nearly every turn. It's also time to reflect on the issues that matter most to black Americans today and the many areas in which black people are still fighting for justice and equality. One of those areas is voting rights. Although the 15th Amendment technically gave black men the right to vote, for many that right existed only on paper for nearly a century. Even more appalling, black women were not officially granted the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. To this day, black Americans face many issues when it comes to voting, including hyper-targeted voter suppression tactics, um, which a lot of us have heard of in the news. Despite this, black voters remain an incredibly important voting bloc in this country that campaigns and candidates must pay attention to. Um, So for today's discussions, we are joined by Marcia Johnson Blanco, co-director of the Voting Rights Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Hi, Dania. Hi, Marcia. (laughs) Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, And we are also joined by Danielle Solomon, who's the Vice President of Race and Ethnicity um, Policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Hi, Danielle. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks. So we're going to take a closer look at voting rights and elections in the context of Black History Month. Um, So let's jump in. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. So to start off today's conversation, um, Marcia, would you mind sharing a little bit about the mission of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law and the voting rights project that you're co-directing? Sure. So the Lawyers Committee was founded in 1963 by President Kennedy to in uh, have the private bar join in the fight against discrimination that was happening at that time. And our um, primary me- mission is to secure equal justice under law. So what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, We use litigation, we use uh, programs such as the Election Protection Program and advocacy to fight against discrimination. And particularly um, in my role, I fight against voting discrimination and I oversee our programmatic and advocacy work. Thanks. 
And Danielle, what is the Center for American Progress um, Action Fund Race and Ethnicity Team currently focused on? Hi, thanks. Oh, sorry. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I just jumped in. (laughs) Um, So I run the Race and Ethnicity Team here at the Center for American Progress. Uh, We work every day to ensure that our economic, social, and political systems actually provide good outputs for people of color. We know historically that has not been the case. Uh, The team is very much focused on the intersection of economic justice and racial justice. We've built a huge body of work around the racial wealth gap and coming up with solutions to eliminate it. Um, We also are very much uh, working in partnership with a number of teams in the building um, around protecting against civil rights infractions. So we're here today talking about voting rights. Voting rights is one of the issues we work on, policing reform, um, just really ensuring that people of color can fully participate in all our systems. And then we also work a lot around diversity, equity, and inclusion issues as well. Great. Awesome. Such a breadth of expertise here at the table. So today's February 26th. We're almost to the end of Black History Month. Um, Why do you think it's important to think about voting when we think about black history? Um, I guess I'll throw that to either of you. Well, I'll start. Uh, As you alluded to it within the introduction, that black people, African Americans, really didn't get the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And with that act, we made it essential that American democracy include all eligible voters. And right now, as we think about the advances that black people have made, we also have to reflect on the fact that the right to vote is under threat. Uh, It started in 2013. Well, it started a long time ago, but really, (laughs) the Supreme Court in uh, 2013 really did a lot of damage um, when it uh, struck down a very important uh, part of the Voting Rights Act. And so now we have jurisdictions, particularly those with a history of discrimination in voting, who are doing a lot of things to make it harder for black people and other minorities to be able to vote. So as we reflect on the progress we've made and we lift up the heroes um, in our history, we also need to take the time, particularly election year, Mm -hmm. primary elections are happening right now, um, to really uh, look at what... um, where we are with regards to the right to vote and what we need to do to really secure it, frankly. Yeah. And Danielle, just like Marcia hinted, this is an election year. Um, so it's important that this conversation extends well beyond this month. Um, what do you think uh, the state of voting rights in this country are right now? Yeah, I mean, I would just, I, I support everything that Marcia just said. I would just also add that it's, voting is like foundational, right? It is the it is the, the most important of all our rights because it is the one that all the other ones fall on top of. If you do not have the power to exercise your, vo- your voice and your vote, everything else kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, I agree as well that I think we're in a, a scary time uh, after uh, Citizens United um, and stripping of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act there are increasing efforts to suppress and dilute the vote of uh, Americans, specifically Americans of color, specifically African Americans. Um, And we know that through history and we see that in present day. I think it was within 24, 48 hours of that coming down, we saw jurisdictions stand up. Um, they voters, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> voter suppression tactics requiring voter IDs, purging, um, lots of efforts because um, this is not a new trick, right? This is something yeah. that our country has long seen, just suppressing the vote um, of people of color and of women. 
so I think in, in this moment, it is very serious. I think it's serious not only because it's an election year. I think it's serious because it's the state of our democracy, because it is foundational. Totally agree on that. Um, Marcia, just this morning, you spoke on a panel at the House at a House Oversight and Reform Committee hearing on voter suppression in minority communities, um, learning from the past to protect our future. Can you share with us the purpose of this hearing and what you talked about and kind of like um, how that also builds up with what Danielle has shared? Well, it was really humbling because I was on a panel with Diane Nash and Timothy Jenkins, who were leaders in SNCC. And I was talking to them before the hearing about the fact that they put, they literally put their bodies on the line for the right to vote with the freedom rights. And we're here again. <laughs> and just for them, how it must feel to have uh, spent uh, blood, sweat, and tears getting a law passed like the Voting Rights Act and then having to come to a hearing which was talking, which is primarily focused on what voting discrimination looks like today, what we've lost without having a full uh, Voting Rights Act um, to push back against uh, discrimination, what it means that we have a Justice Department that isn't actively enforcing voting laws. And so the panel was to really lift up the history, because it's important to know the history, but also to make the parallels between what voting discrimination looked like then and what it looks like now. And unfortunately, there isn't a lot of difference because while the laws aren't explicitly saying you can't vote if you're a person of color, the way laws are being implemented, they are disproportionately impacting voters of color. And so we just really went through all the different ways in which that is happening today. And can I jump in? I think part of that also is this is really about uh, this is really a conversation about power and who controls power. And when you block v folks from accessing the voting booth, that's a way of controlling your power base. So you can have control over the other policies that are really important to communities. So the fact that these tactics that are being used are not that different, I think also is a testament of we have a long way to go in our country if we actually want to see people of color be able to fully participate in all of these different systems. And, you know, if I can add, in reality, if you look at our founding, it was not expected that all people, mm -hmm. despite what the word said, will participate in our democracy. We've been building up from men of property can vote to all eligible voters can vote. And I feel like our democracy is really struggling with what it means when you say all eligible voters have access to the ballot. And for some people, that is an untenable idea, and they are passing laws and using procedures to minimize the impact of certain voters. All right, thank you so much. We'll return back to this very important conversation after our commercial break. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. 
And I'm your other co-host, Adwith Theodine. Um, and today, uh, the last full week of Black History Month, um, we're talking about a super important and super uh, interesting subject. We're talking about uh, voting rights and the power of women of color voters. Today in studio, we have joining us um, Marcia Johnson Blanco, the co-director of the Voting Rights Project and the lawyer at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Thank you for being with us, Marcia. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Danielle Solomon, Vice President of Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Thanks for coming back with us, Danielle. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to jump right back into um, some stuff that we started touching on a little bit in the last segment here. Um, so how are people of color and uh, black people in particular disproportionately targeted by voter suppression measures? Yeah, I'll start. And I think it's, you know, be helpful to just talk about a list of the ways that that happens. So we see not being able to get on the rolls because of laws and like the exact match law that Georgia had, where if there's any difference between your voter registration form and your motor vehicles uh, database, you weren't um, put on the rolls. Uh, we have uh, voter purges that are happening, cuts to early voting, uh, restrictive voter ID laws, closures and consolidations of polling places, rejection of absentee ballots. Uh, not uh, enforcing the laws for those uh, who are limited English proficient, not allowing those with felony convictions to vote. And what do they all have in common? They disproportionately impact African-American and other minority voters. Uh, Why do you think some of these tactics are so effective? Well, you know, there was a court in uh, North Carolina and pushing back against their omnibus, what the... um, opponents called a monster voting law, and the court said that that law was enacted with surgical precision to impact African Americans. Wow. And what we see with these laws is that they are written in such a way to really impact particular voters. In North Dakota, their voter ID law said, you need to have a street address. In the Native community, their IDs don't have a street, street address. So it's to impact, you know, native voters. So overall, the purpose and the way these laws are being enacted, they may seem innocuous on their face, but yes to a concealed carry gun permit as ID, no to a student ID to vote. It's really targeting particular voters. And there's a reason for that, I think. You know, the re- there's a method to that madness, which is mm-hmm. if you allow those voters to vote, then power, like, moves away from those who want to keep it, right? Um, like I said before, I do think voting is foundational. If you care about criminal justice reform, if you care about educational reform, if you care about the environment and where you live and if the water in your community is clean or if it runs, like Flint, uh, if it's clean, then you have to be able to go to the voting booth and actually elect the person who you know value has the same values as you do and um that means that like people might lose power that have it right now that don't care about those issues and so they are working really tirelessly to continue to make it harder for that those types of changes to be made yeah, I think it's like alarming across the board. And even in reflection about what you said about hearing from the folks from SNCC who can actually draw that comparison of like how much people have fought to try to preserve like voting rights and to protect them and like where we are today, it's it's alarming, definitely. Um, what are some solutions to some of these problems that are happening? So some of the solutions are what people can do and some are what 
legislatures need to do. <laughs> so um, we're finding that people are actually having to monitor what their election officials are doing in order to stop it. So making sure that they know when polling place closures are coming up so that they can push back against it. No one who's not an election official should have to do that, right? Um, we also have um, the Congress that has passed bills um, such as the For the People Act and to fix the Voting Rights Act. Um, that's necessary and needed. But um, it's also what we need to do as the public and is holding our election elected officials accountable and making sure that they're aware that we think this is a problem, it's a priority. Fixing the Voting Rights Act, which transformed American democracy, is a priority. And unfortunately, our elected officials only act when we lift things up and say that's the priority for the voters that they care about. And so, you know, we have a part to play as well. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, there used to be a time when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized in a bipartisan fashion, and unfortunately that has gone by the wayside. Um, you know, all no matter your political affiliation, you should be supportive of, you know, uh, Americans being able to vote and vote for the candidate that they feel um, has their values uh, most at heart. I mean, we are a democracy, and so we should be opening the voting doors, not trying to close them out. I would also say... Um, what people can do. I mean, I think Florida is a great example of how, you know, the people can actually change how we treat uh, folks. Uh, a year ago, you know, the residents of Florida voted to ensure that people with um, who were formerly incarcerated could actually access the voting booth. Unfortunately, uh, we had a legislature who wanted to uh, continue to block um, their ability to access the voting booth. But the the residents of Florida spoke up and showed up to say this is not actually how we should be conducting our democracy. So I encourage everyday people to continue to stand up and ensure that all Americans can access the voting booth. I would also say that there is a responsibility to um, ensure at the state and local level that they don't allow voter suppression tactics to go unchecked. So if you are seeing flyers in your community that have the wrong dates of when you go and vote, you should speak out. Um, there are lots of things that folks can do on the ground. Thank you, Danielle. Um, we're going to go to a break. And on that note, let's think about that. <laughs> I'm Edwith Theogene. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And today we are talking about uh, Black History Month in the context of voting rights and the power of women of color voters. We are joined by Marcia Johnson Blanco, from the voting rights, who's a co-director of the Voting Rights Project of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Hello, Marcia. Hello. Hello. And we are also joined by Danielle Solomon, Vice President of Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Hello, Danielle. Uh, hi. Hi. So last segment, we kind of ended on the note of a lot of great solutions, and definitely we do have a say in the matter of all the things that are happening voting. Um, so thank you so much. Um, right now we're going to move the discussion to really talk through the impact of voters of color. Um, Danielle, you recently published a report in November on the power that women of color have in the electorate. What were some of the key findings of your report? 
Yeah. Uh, last uh, winter, I guess. Or we're still in winter, aren't we? Uh, we released... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're in Florida, it's like, but, no. We're both from Florida. This is why we're always disoriented. <laughs> um, we did. We released a report really trying to highlight uh, the power of women of color in the electorate because they are a growing force. Um, over the past 20 years, women of color have grown by 59%. Um, and we felt like it was important to draw attention to the fact that um, elected officials, policymakers, people who care about voters should really start talking to a growing majority of Americans, which happen to be women of color, to see what they think is re- what they think should be our priorities, what is most important to them, and then come up with the policy solutions that actually would address their needs. Um, some of the key issues that we found in our research were women of color are actually not very different than most pe- people in America. They care about health care. They care about jobs. They care about discrimination. They care about immigration. What is different is that the solutions that are often talked about or offered don't center women of color in the responses. And so we encourage uh, policymakers uh, and lawmakers to think about how we actually deliver policy responses that address the needs of women of color. Uh, We also found that black women continue to be the largest and most Uh, politically active voting bloc. Um, Black women, as I say, are the backbone of the Democratic Party. They are um, loyal and they always show up. Um, I I would encourage those running for office to uh, remember that um, and uh, offer policy solutions that meet the needs of black women. Uh, Latinas also are the second largest and uh, the second fastest growing population over the past uh, 20 years. Um, For example, 42 percent of the female vote in uh, New Mexico, Texas, Nevada and Florida are Latinas. So, again, how are policymakers and elected officials uh, engaging with Latinas to find out what is most important to them and what policy solutions they are looking for? Um, So that's some of the work that we did in the report. We were um, excited to do it, and we hope that it will uh, encourage folks to really start talking to these communities who are often left, um, not behind, but they are often forgotten until the last moment um, or called upon at the last moment to show up without real engagement. And there needs to be real engagement with women of color voters, but voters of color in general as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I know in the past couple of elections in the 2018 midterms, um, it was uh, so uh, with Edwith and I, we are always looking at patterns of young people and that sort of thing. Um, and young people happen to be a particularly diverse generation. So in the 2018 midterms, we saw that there was um, a record turnout from um, from young voters. And what are some of the trends um, that you're seeing with turnout with women of color voters? Yeah, I mean, I think they're growing, right? Like, women of color voters are growing. Like I said, they grew 59% um, over the past uh, 20 years. Um, In Nevada, and I pulled these numbers, I'm looking for them. So in Nevada, since 2000, Latinas increased by 8% of um, the eligible voter population. So what I think this says to people is you need to actually start investing in like those communities. You actually need to stand up real operations um, in those communities to talk with them specifically and not just um, opine or think about what you think they want, but actually go talk to them about the issues they're facing. Um, So, I mean, I guess I would say, again, like what we lack uh, in political engagement around voters of color and women of color specifically is that ongoing dedicated engagement with the community. Um, It can't be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, or even the year of an election. It needs to be an ongoing engagement with them. Um, 
over and over and over again. And I think when you do see politicians who invest in those communities, you actually do see the voters turn out. I think that's why you do see um, black voters consistently turning out for Democrats, um, because Democrats do do a better job, I would say, than Republicans in talking to them about their needs. But there's also a lot of work that needs to be done from the Democratic Party in addressing uh, black voters' needs as well. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Marcia. No, and I would say, you know, I could think of uh, women of color as the color as the in spite of voters. Mm. So in spite of the voter suppression that's happening, they'll stand in the long lines. Mm-hmm. They'll make sure that they turn out in spite of the fact that they're relied on to take politicians over the line to win. They're not engaging them, you know, on the issues that they care about. I think the women of color really show that um, what engagement in our democracy can look like because they're leading that forefront, but they also have to overcome so much in order to do that. And I'm curious to ask you guys, because you, you all do look at the the generational breakdown. Do you see differences in, I mean, we do, I have come across seeing there is a generational divide, especially among black voters and how they are looking at how the parties are responding to their their needs and how that like what their policy solutions are. Yeah, that's a good question, and we're actually going to be releasing an issue brief um, on this uh, in a, in a few weeks. Um, and so I think what we're what we're seeing is with young voters, um, they tend to sort of have a little bit of. Um, uh, first of all, 18 to 35 year olds, the the generation that we focus on, millennials and Gen Z, um, are more diverse um, in in so many ways than any preceding generations. They uh, tend to have much more young people of color, um, a smaller white percentage than any past generations um, that this country um, has seen. Um, and so I think that uh, elected officials should probably be a little bit scared if they're not thinking about the opinions of these young people, um, because also when we look at these uh, young voters what we often see um, is not whether they're voting Democrat or Republican, but whether they're uh, how they're voting on the issues. It's mm-hmm. not whether they're not saying like, hey, I'm a Democrat. They're they're not saying, hey, I'm a Republican. They tend to not affiliate with either party and they're going to vote for candidates that are speaking to the issues that matter matter to them. Um, and, you know, like I said, uh, 2018, there was um, a huge surge in youth turnout. Um, and in 2016, even, um, young voters voted um, overwhelmingly uh, for Hillary. They didn't vote for Trump. Um, and that is in part because of how many young people of color there are in that generation. And I will also add, too, in terms of, like, voter suppression, we all know that there are also, like, specific targeted voter suppression of, like, young people voting and, like, people on college campuses, like, literally taking, like, polling places that used to be on college campuses off college campuses, making it harder and inaccessible. And in reference to earlier, you made the comment about that black voters, black women voters are similar to like everyone else and the issues that they care about. I think young people, young people of color, young women of color care about those issues too, but because they're impacted in a different kind of way, they might make different kind of policy choices. I think so there is like a difference in that. So when we talk about like healthcare, depending on where you are in your life, are you looking at healthcare in terms of like me taking care of my family, me taking care of myself? And like when you talk about the economy, are you approaching it from a frame of the unique impacts that like millennials are facing in terms of like student debt, right? And as millennials are getting older, we're becoming this interesting kind of like squishy middle of like we are now growing to this caretaker phase if we have not already been of our families. Um, of older generations, as well as taking care of like our growing families. So there's all of those dynamics that impact as well. 
Um, and the last statement um, I think that is interesting to know, one of the things that kept coming up for me as both of you were talking was there's been a couple of articles floating around about the other swing voter, right? Mm-hmm. Ibram Kendi. Yes, mm-hmm. who we are hoping to meet and get to know soon. <laughs> He's wonderful. <laughs> He's really great. And I really, really love the article that he did on the Atlantic in the Atlantic where he talked about the way that campaigns and other advocates approach voting circles and in particular voters of color. Right. There's this idea of like trying to find that person who's going to go from like Republican to Democrat to Republican and whatever. And then as like it completely ignores Uh, voters of color who are loyal, who are committed to their party, and there's sort of like this we're being taken advantage of as of like, oh, it doesn't matter what we do, like you're going to like turn out to vote. And that's not really the case. Like people still need to work and earn our vote. And that's something that I think the article really illuminated. And for us, a generation progress, we have taken that um, into consideration as we think about what our strategies are and how we work with young folks and how we work with communities of color. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think we are at this, I wouldn't say a turning point, We are, but we are at a point where, pe- where people of color, definitely black people are saying, we have consistently shown up, we do that hard work, um, and it's time for us to be sitting at the table and making those decisions. Um, you need to invest in us just like you invest in uh, non-college educated white voters that you feel like could vote for the Democratic Party. We are voting for you, so yeah. you should actually listen to us too. Um, and the, the Kindy article did a great job of talking about the importance of investing in those voters, young voters, voters of color who are here, who are showing up, versus trying to persuade this group of voters who just aren't really interested and yeah. aren't really listening to you and don't share the same... Um, necessarily the game the same um, pathways or values that you that the other ones do and I think that it's important to one I think it's important to do both right because I do think we're trying to move the country towards a more perfect union but I do think it's important that you at least invest in the ones that have been showing up and right now that is not happening and that is a huge problem especially considering the fact that that population the one that has been showing up is continuing to grow yeah I think there's like a, I forget who said this quote, but dance with the one who brought you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I think we'll jump into our break. Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host Charlotte Hancock, and I'm your other co-host Edward Theogene. Um, and we're going to jump right back in with our awesome guests that we have here in studio. We have Marcia Johnson Blanco from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, as well as Danielle Solomon from the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Thanks so much for joining us again. Um, so I want to make sure that we get to. Um, some sort of like next steps here. Uh, What would your advice be to candidates and campaigns when it comes to reaching, mobilizing, um, and engaging voters of color, particularly women of color in this election? I know, I mean, we're talking about uh, not waiting until the last minute. It's like, we're kind of getting there. We're already like, like people, if they don't already have a plan, you know, so like what should their plans be? Like, uh, Like how should folks be doing better? Well, number one, they should show up. Like, they should actually just show up. That would be, like, step one. I think step two is to listen. 
uh, and not come in with like uh, pre-baked ideas, but actually listen to the community um, to see what they actually need. And then three, I would say, is to actually come up with uh, intentional targeted plans to address their needs. So for example, if um, you're talking about healthcare policy, if you aren't also talking about uh, maternal and infant mortality for black women, then you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. If you are talking about criminal justice reform and only talking about reentry, but not talking about sentencing reform or policing reform, you're missing a big piece of the puzzle. Or collateral consequences. Yes. So, I mean, I think it's about really listening to the community. I think it's about showing up. I think it's about listening to the community. And then three, I think it's about coming up with policy solutions that actually address the problems that that community is facing um, versus, you know, big picture ideas, but really targeted um, policy interventions for those communities. Yeah, and I would say when you do that, people will show up. uh, Florida, the Amendment 4 vote is an example where 65% of the people voted for the amendment, and it was more than for the candidates. So if you are a candidate that's leading with an issue, like an Amendment 4 type issue that appeals to young people, they're going to show up and they're likely, you know, going to vote for you because you're, as you were saying, Danielle, talking about the issues that they actually care about, not just what some voters care about, (laughs) but also what impacts them specifically. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, How can ordinary people get involved? I think accountability is a big thing. You know, one of the things that I'm noticing is that, you know, we talked about uh, women of color showing up, um, even though they're being ignored by the party they tend to vote for. (laughs) But young women of color are not so likely to put up with that. (laughs) And if um, even if, um, you know, one party is pretty complacent about the um, people of color voting for them, that complacency Um, shouldn't be there because the younger folks are not going to put up with just um, having one choice. And then, unfortunately, they get caught in the catch-22 because if they stay home, then they're really not going to be looked at or approached. And so you need to show up anyway and really force a dialogue and a conversation about what you care about. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a big proponent of voting. Like, I, I, I take the point um, around you want to um, vote for someone who shares your values, but I'm also a big proponent of you have to vote. Um, you just have to vote. So I want to push that voting is essential. I think uh, to your accountability point, I think that is that is target right on. I do think that. Um, it can be as simple as if you are seeing voter suppression tactics happen on the ground, you need to speak up and speak out. I think it's about exercising your right to vote. I think it's about standing in line. Um, if you aren't at the table, you can't make changes. So I, I do think, again, and I know I sound like a broken record, voting is important. People need to vote. And I would say if you not voting affirmatively, you're actually voting for against your interests. Mm. So not showing up and not voting is not an option. Yep. Yeah, so I think sort of the theme of of this show has been sort of a it's not it's it's like 
people have to vote, candidates have to listen to them, but then also um, if there is no way for people to get to the ballot box or um, if somebody, as we started this show saying, like is actively suppressing your access to the ballot box, um, then we end up with sort of like a catch-22. So what will it take to make sure that uh, women of color are able to vote, not just in this election, but um, sort of like in perpetuity? What, can, what, what are some of the measures that we can take to make sure that there's fair and equal access um, to the ballot box um, going forward? And I will get in big trouble if I don't say if anyone encounters any voter suppression, <laughs> call 866-OUR-VOTE and report it. And it's also to get information. Um, we need to confirm our voter registration so we don't get any nasty surprises <laughs> when we um, show up to vote. But particularly, you know, for um, women of color, um, we talked about voting, but also running, <laughs> right? Because we talk about, you know, there aren't people who are speaking to the issues we care about. Maybe then we're the ones that have to step up and be the ones speaking about those issues and asking for the vote. Um, you know, democracy, you can't be passive in a democracy. You have to engage. And even, you know, as I said before, if you're not engaging, others are engaging on your behalf and then not in a way that you would like. And so, uh, you know, there are the numbers about our demographics and if we're not speaking on our behalf, others will be speaking for us, and we don't want that. And what was the quote that Shirley Chisholm, I think you shared this? Oh, yes. Uh, Shirley Chisholm said, if they don't have a seat for you at the table, bring a folding chair. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to hear, uh, you should run three times. So yeah. if you are a black woman. For women. Wo- for yeah. women? women. If you're a black woman. three times. Okay, let's say it three times. You should run. You should run. You should run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it three times right here. All right. Um, so where can people learn more about the work either of you are doing in your organizations? So for me, um, you can follow our team at amprog.com. Um, our team is the race and ethnicity team. There's a tab on our website. You can follow me at, at Danny, D-A-N-Y, in D.C. Um, and you can also follow our other team Twitter account, which is at Cap Talks Race. And for my work, you can find out more at the lawyerscommittee.org website or the 866rvote.org website. Uh, the Twitter handle for election protection is at electprotect. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's at 866rvote. Streamlining. And I can be found at, at mfjblanco on Yay. Twitter. And Charlotte, where can people find you? <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm saying as insightful things as Danielle or, uh, or, Marcia, or Marcia here, but um, I'm on Twitter at Charlotte Ann, C-H-A-R-L-A-T-A-N-N-E. My parents had a sense of humor. They, like, literally named me Charlatan, uh, <laughs> I, I guess. Um, but I, was, I would also encourage folks to check out genprogress.org um, because that's where most of our great work is um, and all the information about um, voter suppression tactics. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter at Who's Ed With. It is a joke. Who is Ed With. <laughs> so thank you all so much. Um, that's all the time we have today for our show. Thanks to our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our guests, Marcia Johnson Blanco and Danielle Solomon, and to all our listeners. Make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram. I'm like Charlotte Shared. Use the Gen Progress handle. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>